welcome back to this special Christmassy edition of Talk Evidence. This year has been a pretty heavy one. It's been so full of COVID and talks about mortality rates and uh, bad science and a lot of uh, doom and gloom. And so in this Christmas edition, we wanted to turn our attention to the BMJ's Christmas issue, um, which is a much more light-hearted look at research, but importantly, research that is still done well. Helen, what I've always wondered, and I've never actually sat in on one of these meetings in all my time at the BMJ, is how the conversations around Christmas at the hang kind of goes. <laughs> because um, I've sat in in other uh, hangs and it's very, you know, there's big chats about epidemiology and is this the right population and is this going to actually really help you know, doctors make better decisions uh, in the in the research. But obviously, Christmas is wildly different. Um, those rules are kind of all turned on their heads. So, what is it that you that you're interested in? Well, to be honest, Duncan, I'm not sure they're that much different to a general manuscript meeting. In some way, the rules are turned on their head. That mostly is around the research question, I would say. So we tend to take research questions that we might not consider at other times of year. And they might be just silly and humorous <laughs> ones and then answered in a very sort of geeky, nerdy way for our own entertainment. We get some papers that actually touch on really important topics, sort of more humanitarian or, or big picture thinking. But what we try to do is not to lower the methods bar too much in terms of selecting these papers. And bizarrely, if you talk to some of the authors of Christmas research papers, they often say that it was one of their favourites, whether it was just fun, fun to write. Um, <laughs> and um, sometimes they actually turn out to be very well cited. Of course, to get to that point, the editors read a lot of stuff which has amused the researchers or doctors tremendously writing it, but actually doesn't work. But I guess that's kind of the nature of comedy, isn't it? Sometimes it falls flat. <laughs> and it's the nature of research at the BMJ. I mean, we only publish about, what, 4% of uh, research papers sent to us? <laughs> yeah. Is that is the bar as uh, Do high? You know, for... I, I, don't think, I don't think we have done any thorough internal research on your odds of getting published in the Christmas edition versus other times of year. Um, perhaps uh, perhaps we should look into that for yeah, next year. That's one. But I think actually what I wanted to try and do in this podcast, um, which does, I guess, kind of have a serious point, is people are often quite fascinated around how we make decisions mm. about research papers and what happens at our manuscript meetings and how do we pick them and who's who's there. Um, and so in this episode, I uh, got together with uh, John Fletcher and Tim Feeney, who are two of my research editor colleagues at the BMJ, to give you a kind of sense of how the manuscript meeting works. Now, we couldn't do it entirely faithfully. I mean, A, we were talking about Christmas papers, but B, obviously we couldn't talk about the papers we rejected because it would be that a would bit be unethical and, yeah. and breaking people's confidence. But um, I did want to give you a sense of um, of how, how it happens. Oh, well, let's uh, peel back the curtain on the Christmas hang then. So John and Tim, thank you so much for joining us for this special episode of Talk Evidence. And our kind of 
special fashioned manuscript meeting slash talking about Christmas research papers. Um, Often when we have visitors to the manuscript meeting, we introduce ourselves perhaps to a handful of people. But today I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself to all of our listeners. So several thousand of them. John, should we start with you? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Helen. Um, I'm John Fletcher. I'm one of the research editors here at um, the BMJ. I think I discovered journal editing around about the uh, turn of the century um, when I joined uh, BMJ to read papers. Um, That was after having trained um, in both general practice and public health. It was just a fill-in job, but um, I loved it so much that I've stayed um, editing papers ever since then um, here in the UK and uh, for a spell over um, at the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Thanks, John. And your expertise in both those areas is always so useful um, at Manuscript Meeting. Tim, tell us a bit about yourself. Oh, yeah, my name's Tim Feeney. I'm a research editor as well. I have some training in general surgery, and I also have some training in epidemiology and biostatistics. And after that training, I got involved in journal editing about a year and a half, two years ago, um, here at the BMJ, and I did it because I love reading papers from all different specialties, and this was a great way to do that and talk with other really smart people about them, and this has kind of just continued on, and I love the job here, so this is really a great opportunity to keep doing that. Thanks, Tim. And John, I think it's fair to say um you are a tremendous teacher as well as a clinician and epidemiology type. Um, is it fair to call you a nerd? <laughs> can I do that? <laughs> you can call me an epi or, epi or a numbers nerd if you want. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember when I first started at BMJ back in 2008, you gave me some very invaluable advice about an approach, a general editing approach to looking at research papers. And it's so good and succinct. Would you share it with our listeners? Yes, well, I mean, my shorthand is to think that choosing papers is a riot, R-I-O-T, which stands for, uh, is this research question and the paper relevant to our readers? So if it's about sort of heart disease and treatments, it probably is relevant. And if it's about... um, the correct suture material for a cataract surgery, it's probably less relevant to a general medical journal. Uh, The I is important. So does it really matter? Do do the findings matter? Um, So a survey that that shows that um, school children, say in the UK, are just sort of a a quarter of a centimetre different in height to uh, school children in another country. It it might not be that important, and uh, so we might not take it. Um, original. We're very happy to publish um, maybe the second piece or third piece of research that shows something, but if it's the fourth or sixth um, observational study of a particular association, then maybe not. So we're looking for things that are at the beginning of the story. T, I would say, surprisingly, it has to be true. The methods have to be good. The answer to the question has to be reliable. I say surprisingly because you'd have thought it was the first thing, but if the T was the first thing, then it wouldn't be a riot, it would be a trio. <laughs> it would also take you a long time to read the papers, because in 
evaluating the truth, it always seems to me like the T step is is the longest one. And, and often papers, particularly towards the beginning of the process, fall on those Rio bits, can we call them, the relevant, interesting, Yes, you're original. right. It, it, it's, it's much quicker to, to, to judge the relevance and importance of something than to wade through the um, the methods. I love wading through methods, but... Um, <laughs> and therein papers... we might spot the difference between us. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> but sometimes I just have to step away. Sometimes. Um, but all of this is sometimes slightly different at Christmas. And Tim, this has been your first year uh, editing or perhaps even getting your head around the special Christmas issue at, at the BMJ. Um, Tell us a bit about how Christmas research papers differ uh, from our usual ones. Well, there's always a bit of something about a Christmas paper that, you know, I have this gut feeling whether or not it's right for a Christmas issue of the BMJ. So usually that kind of sets the tone. But I will say that generally what we're looking for are quirky questions, things that we would not normally um, entertain because it's not... Um, important enough or original enough but for Christmas we're always looking for the the quirky question that otherwise we would just never think to address but is interesting and and important in in certain ways and then I think um, second to that is humor if you can do that uh, ask and answer a quirky question in a humorous way I think that that really sets it apart and I don't mean in your face slapstick type of humor I mean a very subtle intellectual type humor that makes you laugh even though it's not blatantly trying to. And then I think a third criteria that I always apply myself and I feel like has been very successful in identifying papers that will make it and do well for Christmas is, is this something I could see chatting with colleagues uh, during downtime on the wards? Um, where you would bring up the paper and start to have friendly disagreements or arguments about a topic uh, one that came to mind that was really good was one we did last year where you evaluate which specialty is more likely to get a speeding ticket. Because you could kind of poke and prod <laughs> was that your, your Was that your specialty, Tim? Um, no, it wasn't. It was my <laughs> wife's, which I think is the, the funny part. Um, but it, it kind of, you know, it was, it was a quirky question. It was uh, somewhat humorous, but it also was something I could see chatting with fellow physicians about in a way that, you know, for that one, it would it would be gentle prodding, but... I think that uh, that always helps raise the bar a little bit. Like, is this something we would want to talk about amongst ourselves? And so those are those are how we, I think, usually go about identifying papers. And I think a, a fourth criteria this year was, given COVID, is it something that's going to make us really sad and depressed? Or is it going to be something that help uh, elevate the spirits at the end of the year, at the end of a very, very rough year for everybody? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, we had a surprising number of papers sent in. You know, when when we say on the website we want cheerful stuff, surprising number about deaths and tombstones, and weird post mortem findings. I guess that's a doctor's um, sense of humour. Yes, sometimes they are a bit dry, aren't they? And sometimes maybe the humour is quite British. I know with some of our international editors, um, it can be hard. I think there can be cultural <laughs> barriers to doctor humour as well. So without further ado, I think we should get um, onto your onto your pick. And we've got four papers for you today. And the first one, I think, can we say this is the silliest paper? It's about a book, George's Marvellous Medicine, authored by Roald Dahl, of course, and very much a book which 
dominated my childhood or an author that dominated my childhood uh, reading. John, Tim, who's presenting this one? Uh, this was uh, this one came in to me and um, like you, Helen, I recognised the author and I rather like this. It's a couple of um, doctors and their families, they, their young children, got down and read George's Marvellous Medicine and made a list of the ingredients. And I like that the children were involved in this. Um, and having listed out all of the ingredients to uh, George's Marvellous Medicine, which includes things like antifreeze, engine oil, curry powder, toothpaste and, and things. They then looked, uh, looked up the toxic effects on um, a poisons database to see um, would the medicine really have made um, Granny uh, fly into the air as uh, described in the book. And they document some of the immediate effects of the uh, medicine that are similar to what Rule Dahl uh, suggested, uh, like shouting out and saying that she's Granny's on fire. Um, but then some rather um, macabre side effects. Uh, many of them, many of the things are quite um, quite toxic to kidneys, lung, hearts, and so on. Um, it's meant to be a harmless romp, but I was surprised, and this probably speaks to uh, British humour, um, that one of the um, uh, reviewers from uh, the USA took a little bit of time to see the joke um, <laughs> and uh, said, uh, uh, by the time I read the abstract and introduction, I was so thoroughly confused about the nature of the manuscript that I was forced to invest in my own copy of the original book. And as I hope to be a grandparent in the near future, I read it somewhat in horror and felt <laughs> sympathetic to the cranky grandmother. <laughs> Towards the end of the review, as the American entertainment business has become well known for cats wearing a hat, destroying personal property, having hunters chase carrot-chewing rabbits and dropping an anvil on the head of a coyote chasing a roadrunner, I think we would still draw the line at elder abuse of this type. <laughs> She deserved it, though, didn't she? She was a very miserable old <clears throat> granny in the book. Yeah. That is to say that if people are not familiar with the book, the basic premise is that George is a little a little boy who's left alone with his grandma and his job is to give her her medicine and he embarks on a um, trip around his house and garage to create her her own special potion, which causes her to sort of what does she do she sets on fire she grows she, she explodes fire, through the yeah. roof of the house <laughs> and it did have some real life warnings didn't it it did um there were two interesting real life reflections i thought one was that the authors mentioned that in the original copies of the book printed back in the 80s which is probably when i read it it didn't really include any warnings but over time newer runs of the book contain this warning that children shouldn't be making these types of potions at home the other thing which i thought was quite interesting was the idea that um they said obviously we don't know how any of these ingredients would kind of cross react and it made me think of those um older people that i particularly saw doing geriatric placements who talked about they would sort of rattle that they were so full of pills and i wondered what Roald Dahl would think of the kind of polypharmacy which you see in many older older people today so the next paper on our list to discuss um, sort of goes from the silly to the serious in a way. Um, it might sound a bit silly, but the more you think about it, the more serious it is. And this is about, um, I wrote it down as Dr. 
ancestors. And I think this was one of your ones, Tim. Tell us a bit about it. So you're right. It is a bit, you know, the last paper we discussed, uh, we were talking about marvelous medicine and it was a, a lighthearted romp through toxicology. And this, I think, is the other example of a good Christmas article that necessarily doesn't necessarily have to be um, humorous. Uh, it doesn't need to be necessarily lighthearted, but it does answer a quirky question where you might not otherwise evaluate. And it's whether or not um, being a physician runs in the family. And so this was a retrospective study in Sweden because they have such... And why does that matter, Tim? Because you said it's an important question. Why does it matter if, if well, medicine think, runs in I the family? I think it doesn't, it's not important, obviously, to immediate health care. But I think it's important uh, in terms of lending diversity to the physician cohort that treats patients. Um, because you want doctors to be able to represent the full gamut of the population that would be treating. And if you're, I don't want to make this seem genetic, but if you're inbreeding physicians, then you're kind of removed <laughs> from the, the the total population that you're supposed to be treating. You don't, you don't, you don't have a relationship with the population. I know when I went to medical school, there were a lot of students that became great doctors that had uh, physician parents and, but I didn't, um, I'm the first one for my family, and I think that that uh, allowed me a different perspective when I was going through training. So I think that this is important to understand, is there some type of, you know, exclusivity to the physician club? And if so, is there a way to bring in people that are not already in the club um, so that we get a more diverse physician cadre uh, that can treat patients? And I think that's important. So I think in, the, in those terms, it's important. But otherwise, I think physicians would... Be interested in, in knowing about this. Is this really happening? Is there some evidence of it? Because right before mm. I read this, I only had anecdotal experience to say, yes, there's definitely some type mm. of, you know, physician inbreeding. And there's quite a bit in there. They, they seem to look at the proportion of doctors that have a medical parent or another family member, how that's changed over time and how it compares to other professions like uh, lawyers. So it's quite, it's actually quite a rich paper, um, I thought. Tell, tell us a bit more about um, how they addressed the question and what they found. Yeah, it's a retrospective study based in Sweden, and that's good and bad for a couple of reasons. One, it's, it's good because Sweden has really good linkage data, so you can get a lot of information about the people who live in Sweden and become physicians there. But uh, the downside is that you don't have any information about the people coming into Sweden and be, uh, being physicians and whether or not they had parents that or family members that were physicians. So you lose some of that granularity. But mm -hmm. it was a large cohort. They were able to follow them for a long period of time uh, and basically were able to see that over time, the percentage has of uh, physicians with physician parents has gone up. And they've they used an interesting comparator, which was lawyers, which is another well-known profession that you might think would have children that have both parents or at least one parent that is a lawyer because you would the child would grow up in the household with a lawyer and might uh, want to do the same thing. But what they found was that the number of lawyers with parents who were lawyers has actually remained relatively flat while the physicians with physician parents has actually increased over time. And so it was interesting to have used the lawyer um, comparator as a nice control. And so there's no real answer to the question of why this is, uh, what the implications are for this. It's more of a description that it's actually, we found some evidence that the physicians are enriching themselves and physicians. It's becoming more concentrated 
families are becoming more concentrated with physicians. So maybe that's because the families feel like there's a calling within the family and you see that strong professional bond uh, in your parents. Uh, but unfortunately, there's really no real way to answer the question of why this is occurring. Did it tick your riot boxes, John, this one? Yeah, I mean, I think it is a relevant question. I mean, Tim, Tim spoke about the, the need for a diverse workforce. I think there's also a question of um, opportunity that you, you do want to see people from diverse backgrounds having an opportunity to uh, enter what is still a high status and well-paid profession. So it's kind of worrying that that doesn't seem to be the case. And you can see why, I guess, because there's a lot of competition to enter medical school and increasingly people have to show that they've either sat in a surgery or done uh, work in a hospital or in an old people's home and those opportunities to fix up um, work experience like that uh, while still at school come more easily to people who uh, already have family in the profession so there's a lot of um, pressure that uh, that keeps medicine running in the family so I think it is a it is a relevant and important question. And um, and interesting to see it in Sweden, because you think of Sweden as being perhaps a very equitable or do, yeah. relatively um, flat society compared to others. So you you might find that the numbers um, elsewhere are, are worse in a better commas than this, if, if there is a judgment to be attached to it. And I mean, tremendous that there was this, you know, they have the opportunity of a country that's small enough that you can... Um, link all of the um, professions and the databases so that you can you can see uh, who's related to whom and um, been trained. Yeah, Sweden has this double-edged sword of <clears throat> great internal validity because you can link all the people together um, and get their outcomes with poor externalizability because um, Sweden is not necessarily like every other country. So, But it's a good place to start. And these big epi studies, particularly these uh, Scandinavian data linkage studies, the BMJ is a kind of classic home for for some of these pieces. I don't know, John, if you've any reflections over the years on what we love and hate about them. Yeah, I mean, we used to get a bit more from um, Iceland, which is even smaller and easy to keep a keep a handle on, but I think suffers, as Tim said, from even more from the uh, difficulty of not being more generalizable. But yes, uh, the Scandinavian countries seem seem to uh, link up personal data to uh, health insurance and um, social information in in ways that some of the larger countries just just don't seem to do. So that, I guess, was our big picture paper, thinking about the state of the world at Christmas and how perhaps it might be different in the future. Now for a bit more silliness, I think. This time we've got... um, some silly orthopods, <laughs> perhaps, who, who like the children authors of George's Marvellous Medicine, um, obviously had too much time during lockdown. A lot of these papers, to me, look like they'd been written during a lockdown uh, period of time. And I think, Tim, this is your paper as well. And I think, I think you should tell us a bit more about it. I'm glad that it's a surgeon presenting it. And I'm glad that it looks like it's got some surgical authors as well. Yes, we do get a lot of orthopedic contributions to our Christmas pool, which signals to me that the orthopedic surgeons tend to have a good sense of humor. At least they think that they have a good sense of humor, which is um, good to see. So, but this Tim, was... we, we, do, we do have a sort of unwritten rule of the Christmas papers that, that we don't take yet another paper that bashes 
orthopedic surgeons and and uh, ridicules them for being. I think they keep bashing themselves, <laughs> don't they? They're writing. <laughs> yes, they are good at self-deprecating humor. That's for sure. I think that's why we let this one through, wasn't it? It, it did. It did. Uh, it did reassure us that it was written by surgeons. <laughs> Because uh, some of the comments were a little bit... Near, near the bone? <laughs> <laughs> near the bone, John. I think you get a Christmas ring for that. Um, and uh, they seem to like to talk about themselves as well. <laughs> so this is another question about orthopaedic surgeons. So, uh, Tim, tell what, what was the research question here? So this is an interesting case because it is a serious point being made with a very humorous approach. And I think that that is... The key to why this was a great Christmas paper. And it, essentially, the point they're trying to make here is that the treatment choices and predicted outcomes for proximal humerus fractures is poorly understood, even with, even among experts. So they basically did what they called an uncontrolled, blinded, comparative behavioral analysis. That's going to baffle people. Unpick that slowly for us. Um, so they basically took experts in the field of orthopedics and compared them to five Barbary macaques, which are basically... Which is a kind of cute monkey. They're correct. That live in a semi, what they described as a semi-free-range enclosure in Germany. And they compared how experts would both recommend repair of the proximal humerus fracture and predicted outcomes to those that the Barbary macaques were picking. And so they have sh- basically case histories. They have examples and yes, they say, yes. would you choose conservative management or would you choose doing an operation? They ask that to the surgeons yeah, and they... It was case history As plus far as I understood it, lay it out in the form of food for the monkeys to um, pick at. Right. So, yeah, so they presented the experts and the macaques with imaging and case history and they allowed them to pick. And in the case of the monkeys, they let them pick the food. And so basically what this shows is that when you compare the expert advice to the monkeys randomly picking the food, you don't really get a better definition of what should be done for these patients, nor do you get a better predicted outcome. So they use this hilarious way of going about this uh, to compare themselves to monkeys in that there is no good standard uh, way to go about fixing these uh, fractures because the evidence is just not there. So it's not that the experts are dumb, like uh, a lower primate, but that the evidence isn't there. So really, they're kind of going on their own anecdotal experience as opposed to, say, picking it based on some large studies. And so they use this kind of humorous approach, no pun intended, to go about illustrating that more data needs to be obtained for this type of fracture. And I I think that that was where we were really uh, happy about this. It, it was... Initially, I was unsure if this would make it because I was worried that comparing surgeons to to monkeys might go over poorly. But I think in the end, we were happy that it was an orthopedic surgeries kind of doing their own self-deprecation, but also pointing out a very serious issue that a lot of these surgeries are recommended and outcomes predicted without good uh, data underlying them. And that's the important aspect that I think we would like to, to raise. And I think upon revisions, I asked them to kind of bring that out more, that that was really the point. It wasn't necessarily that orthopedic surgeons and monkeys are no different. So you have kind of inconsistent or slightly chaotic clinical decisions um, being made by the surgeons based on the case histories because of a lack of evidence on on a clear way that this type of fracture should be managed. 
Yeah, essentially. And, you know, it that happens a lot in surgery. Surgery is you have to use more advanced observational techniques often because RCTs are not always easy or ethical. And so it's a field where sometimes there's not a whole lot of evidence and you're kind of going on clinical judgment about what might work. And so this, this kind of illustrates that problem that goes beyond orthopedic surgery nicely, I think, in a, in a fun way. Because who doesn't love a story about monkeys? Yeah, Tim, what I loved about this, I mean, it had me laughing out loud too, was that if you just took a bland paper that uh, looked at agreement between um, orthopedic surgeons about the treatment of proximal, proximal humerus fractures and just said there's no international consensus and experts disagree. There's a need for uh, properly controlled studies and preferably some randomised controlled trials and head-to-head comparisons. What a dull paper. Um, (laughs) (coughs) But they've taken that message and done that international and inter-expert comparison and then just gone hyperbolic by including monkeys. Um, I think they've just really played on the O of your riot there, John. Yes, the, orig- the originality. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it, it's time-honoured, isn't it? The, uh, the fool, the jester, doing something ridiculous in order to point out the truth of the matter. And I think that was, that was what really made this a particularly good Christmas paper. Um, was There was a serious point there, um, and they were poking fun both at methods and um, experts in, uh, in putting that serious point across. So... We've reached our final paper. The time to act is now. This really appealed to me, but I guess it appeals to editors because people are always sending us copy suggesting that the time to act is now. Mostly less us. We just have to do the printing. It seems to be the clinicians that are needing to change their behaviour or urgently do something different. And John, I think this um, was your paper. Tell us a bit about the research question and, and what they found. Yes, I mean, I, I don't think this is an attempt to be serious in any any way. Um, what I liked about it was um, it started off with an observation that people love to give some sort of um, importance to uh, their opinions by saying uh, uh, that it's urgent. Um, now is the time. The time to act is now. And this group of uh, researchers who, who have a track record in doing systematic reviews, by the way, decided uh, in lockdown, I guess, again, that they had nothing better to do <laughs> <laughs> than another systematic review. This one was to look at papers that had that, um, that phrase in it, the time to act, um, the time to act is now. And uh, they restricted themselves to research papers and then asked the question, um, was the research finding or the topic really that urgent or um, important uh, compared to uh, the authors putting in the time to act is now? And they've produced some nice graphs of uh, increasing numbers of papers that say uh, the time to act is now. John, tell us some of the key findings. They they did find that um, more and more papers have the words time to act in in the title um, over time. So there's increasing use of uh, the time to act. Well, I quite like the fact that they found very few papers that said um, the time to act is later. Um, It's far more more frequently (laughs) that time to act was now. They wondered whether uh, people at Christmas would uh, take the cue that the time that Christmas is a time to be lazy 
um, and therefore there might be a, a difference in the number of uh, time to act page, papers uh, at Christmas versus other times of year. And one of the sort of rather honest things I liked about the methods was uh, that we, we intended to search the grey literature via Google Scholar, but after an initial yield of 2.7 million results, we decided to admit this step. <laughs> I think lockdown didn't go on for long enough yes I think systematic reviewers sometimes sometimes do find that there's an awful lot more literature than they thought but uh, very few are honest, honest enough to say we decided not to do do the uh, do this and not to be as thorough as we thought we were going to be so were there any major barriers to this when it was discussed at manuscript meeting what were the hawks after there was a question about about whether the search was a real search because uh, one of the editors uh, went away and put uh, put those words time to act um into a google search and uh, found it very difficult to reproduce the research results that the authors said they'd um, they'd produced so that uh, w- was something we had to look at in revision that actually happens a lot i think in most cases that that's a that's the thing that is recurring in our manuscript meetings is that reviews are always, is it systematic? Is it enough to be um, recreated, especially in Christmas? Because I feel like um, a lot of authors submit papers that they feel they can kind of skirt the true systematic nature of a review and be a little bit haphazard and ad hoc mm-hmm. with their searches. And so that happens here. I guess here you could pick holes as well with with the phrasing, isn't it? Sort of time to act. I mean, that's one way that you could phrase that sentiment or that idea, but you could probably phrase it in other ways. Um, And I guess there's a balance between getting the general gist and answer to the research question, which I guess is possibly what they've done here versus charting all ways that you might phrase, I guess, in English or multiple other languages. Um, You need to do something different. And what do you think what do you think about the phrase itself? I mean, on one hand you could say, well, this increasing over time, this could be a good thing because is it showing that research over time is becoming more clinically relevant and um justifiably therefore demanding um action or not to be ignored, or is it in fact that the authors are sort of um perhaps getting a bit um discursive in their discussions and expressing a bit too much opinion. I think what it shows to me is that their authors are learning to appeal to the Rio. And by saying the time to act is now, they're trying to increase their chances of success. By Publication, you mean? By suggesting it's relevant and timely and important. <laughs> and I, I think that is a game that's played by researchers because there's so much research, an increasing amount of research every year that is being done and published that um, you have to find some way to um, highlight your particular piece of research so it doesn't get um, lost amongst everything else. I hope you've enjoyed listening to John and Tim as much as I've enjoyed talking to them um, in our slightly overstylized Christmas manuscript meeting. So thank you both. Thanks, Helen. Until next year. Thanks, Helen. It was great being here. So Helen, having done that, how how much like an actual manuscript meeting 
was that did you have all the people that you would usually have there no statistician or Yes, I mean, there were some obvious differences. As I said, we only talked about papers that ultimately were accepted by the manuscript meeting. So there there was a certain bias there. But usually what would happen at the manuscript meeting is we'd have uh, a couple of hours set aside, um, sort of between eight and 12 research papers, a small team of research editors and a guest statistician who kind of come from a pool of statistical experts who we use. And a bit like patients, kind of each uh, each each paper has a doctor um, or a handling editor and they're in charge of presenting the paper to the rest of the team and bringing out perhaps the contentious points from the peer review. Um, and as um, we heard John talk about, try and crunch down whether the problem with this paper is or the issues to discuss are around its relevance, its importance, its originality, or if this is a question of truth, whether we can actually believe and trust the findings of this study. And that's often how the conversations shape up, trying to weigh up um, the papers that we have, how fixable they are and how they compare to other content that we have at the moment. And typically um, from a manuscript meeting, we might pursue somewhere between, I guess, usually two and four papers um, per week. That doesn't mean that those researchers get a letter saying, hooray, you've done it, you're in the journal. Um, They generally get something that sounds much more standoffish than that, (laughs) saying we might publish it if you make um, this whole bunch of changes to its interpretation or um, its um, statistical methods or its reporting, whatever the, the things are that we can help the authors to improve and communicate better. Yeah, you can uh, improve the, as you say, communication, but not the fundamental design of research at that point, I suppose. Um, last question. People enjoy doing the, the Christmas research, but uh, obviously it's, uh, it's still proper research to do. So have you got any advice for someone who's, who's got an idea that they, they um, think might make a good Christmas research paper and they, they want to maximise their chances of getting it in the BMJ? I think probably... It's not that different from any other research paper. I think you need to know what your research question is. And I think you have to ask yourself um, if readers of the BMJ or people in general would be interested in knowing the answer to it. And perhaps of those categories that I mentioned at the start, is this kind of um, funny? Is it heartwarming? Is it sort of making a, a, a broader point or poking fun at the medical profession or clinical research community um, is it ticking some of those boxes um, and I think the final thing which perhaps crops up um, more with Christmas papers is is it just written perhaps a little bit better a bit more narrative a bit more story yeah um, could you imagine yourself reading it exactly they're not reading it hope well, hopefully they're not reading <laughs> it um, whilst they're <laughs> at work hopefully they're reading it in a in a quiet moment and they have a little bit more time to pause and reflect on life well there you go so you've got some time now if you are starting before um the the weird august deadline for for christmas research yes i was going to say start early christmas christmas content rolls in by late spring usually i think (laughs) (laughs) um so if you've been listening and uh, you're writing that up or thinking of writing it up good luck with that That's it for this episode. Um, We will be back uh, with another special edition before 
we get back to the normal world of talk evidence and this one's looking back at the year so subscribe on apple podcasts or spotify or wherever else you get your podcast from so you don't miss out on that until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me take care out there